you've got to be willing to go down in there and do that. If you're going to, if you're going to separate yourself as a coach and have longevity and you're afraid of that, you're not going to do those things. You'll get, you'll have a job. There's plenty of coaching opportunities for people that, that want to live that way, but you're never, ever going to have deep rooted relationships with your players where they're going to call back on you years after you're done coaching them and ask you what you think about a situation that may have nothing to do with basketball. And I think that's what the separator is. And you can't be afraid to do that. Welcome to another Coaching You podcast with the coach, Brendan Sir. And I'm telling you, today uh, we have an amazing guest, one of my favorite people that I've known for 35 years, Tom Crean, uh, former incredible head coach, incredible assistant coach first to Tom Izzo at Michigan State. That's when we first met 35 years ago when I was assistant coach to Chuck Daly with the Pistons. Then he became the head coach of Marquette, turned it into a Final Four team with the great Dwayne Wade, uh, then became the head coach of Indiana. Just amazing job that he did at IU. And then, you know, you know, after, you know, leaving there, uh, we, we really got to spend a lot of time because that's when he really, it's almost like a coaching sabbatical. I found him to be one of the most incredible people. And then he's done the last four years at, at Georgia as the head coach. Now he's on ESPN as an analyst, studio host, and I absolutely love the, what he's doing in there. But let me tell you about Tom Crean. Uh, the thing about him is he's one of the best and brightest uh, of the people in our field. He is an incredible talent evaluator. He has developed so many NBA players, uh, and, he, and, and the way he develops them, the relationships that he forms with his players, he talks about in this uh, episode how you can't be afraid to coach your star player, and I think that is so, so important. Coaches today, do not be afraid to coach your players. Uh, he talks about NBA trends, what he sees in the game as, you know, just as a student of the game. And then we talked about his brothers-in-law, who I just think the world of John and Jim, Jim Harbaugh, uh, head NFL coach, and of course, the head coach of the University of Michigan. Uh, we talked about spacing on offense, uh, pick and roll coverages, how to adapt and change as a coach. There's so much here. I don't even want to tell you how much time we spent doing this, but I think you're going to love it. So after this quick timeout from our sponsors, we'll be right back with the great Tom Green. We're thrilled to have our longtime partners and friends at Dr. Dish Basketball on board as sponsors of the Coaching You podcast. Dr. Dish machines are undoubtedly the most user-friendly and advanced machines in the world of basketball today. Dr. Dish has completely revolutionized and reimagined the shooting machine to provide the best solution on the market. Join top programs around the world like Duke, North Carolina, Florida, and countless others and upgrade your shooting machine to Dr. Dish. Dr. Dish machines are the best way to increase purposeful reps in your program to get players better, faster, while tracking progress along the way. 
Dr. Dish provides so much more than just your standard shooting machines with custom training, pro trainers, and coaches on demand, real-time and detailed analytics, and top-of-the-line drills and workouts. If you're looking to take your program to the next level, look no further than Dr. Dish for the best basketball training machine in the world. If you have an old machine that you that's just collecting dust in your gym, did you know that you can trade that in for to Dr. Dish for up to $1,500 off and get a new dish. Make sure to give our friends at Dr. Dish a follow at Dr. Dish B-Ball on Twitter and Instagram for great daily drills, workouts, tips, and inspiration. Or contact us at drdishbasketball.com. Don't forget to mention Coaching You or our podcast for $300 off your purchase. Coaches, are you looking to take your game preparation to the next level? Then Fast Model Sports is the perfect coaching software for you. With FastDraw, build an organized library of plays and drills and create professional playbooks to share with your players and staff. You can also download over 9,500 free plays and drills from our playbank directly to your FastDraw account. Looking for a better way to build your scouting reports and want to include video? With FastScout, Build custom scouting report templates to prepare your team best for each individual opponent. Plus, did you know with the latest updates from Fast Model Sports, you can now include video with your Fast Scout reports and share with your coaches and staff all within the Fast Scout mobile app. The combination of Fast Draw and Fast Scout is by far the best way for you and your coaches to create winning game strategies and effectively communicate them to your team. Over 10,000 high school and youth coaches trust Fast Model Sports products to help their teams reach their goals. To order, go to FastModelSports.com. Use code COACHINGU15 to get 15% off any Fast Draw or Fast Scout products. Remember, go to FastModelSports.com. Use code COACHINGU15 to get 15% off any Fast Draw and Fast Scout products. Hey, welcome back to the Coaching You podcast with the coach Brendan Sir and longtime friend, super coach Tom Crean, ESPN analyst. It has a good ring to it, Tom. Welcome, my friend. Thanks. Great to be with you. You know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm enthralled by your bookcase back there. That, that's oh, I'm trying to look at. There's I like the trophies. Uh, I had that Wheaties box forever. Isaiah signed that Wheaties box. I yeah. had that forever. So, yeah. but. Uh, we uh, have this is a this is a this is a very small studio that we have, but my wife has put up Zach uh, probably a hundred and twenty pictures of every picture ever in basketball is in front of me, behind me, on the side of me. It's I said she doesn't want to she, well yeah. she doesn't want to store them in a box, so she's got them right there. Uh, but yeah, so it makes like I didn't realize when we were going to do these things that people are noticing that. Thank God, rather than myself. That's but great, uh, I love it says uh, a lot about your career and about your uh, your curiosity. Yeah, uh, my curiosity with you is you know the amazing amount of NBA talent that you have coached and developed at Marquette, Indiana, and Georgia. And Dwayne Wade obviously was the first and most famous, you know, uh, talk about D Wade. I mean, I know that relationship you have is so special, but I, I think that's the essence of coaching is what you and I have often discussed is relationships, but 
to this oh, day, no he's an incredible friend, you know, of yours. No question. And it's funny. We were just back at Marquette a week ago for the 20-year reunion yep. uh, of the Final Four team from 2003. They played Providence. It was sold out. We'd had a reunion this past summer uh, on the 7th and 8th of August. And that was a, a kind of a, not a gala, but an event that had a lot of donors and boosters. That Shaka Smart with his team was there. A lot of people from the Marquette Athletic Department, our whole team, with the exception of one player, two players, I guess it was, at that point, our coaching staffs. Then they had a golf outing for Marquette the next day. But this was the game. And uh, every player came back 20 years later, every player, every scholarship, every walk-on uh, player, and it was phenomenal. And I'm not sure anybody had as much fun as Dwayne did. And everybody had fun, but he was so proud to be there. He was so, um, it's just, it's just amazing. It, it's, it's amazing his humility, Brendan. It's amazing. Now he's got tremendous confidence, but he knows that he gained so much of that confidence when he was in college, yeah. right? Because he didn't come up like everybody else came up. Right. He had three scholarship offers and then a couple at the end. He didn't go to any of the camps. He, uh, people didn't really recruit him because they didn't think he was going to have the grades and they weren't necessarily wrong, but they didn't dive into him. You know, they didn't dive in to figure out what he was about and why he had had the struggles academically. Unfortunately, we did. Unfortunately, I had a president, Robert, uh, father, Robert A. Wild, that agreed to admit him, uh, knowing that it would be the first one like that. At that time, it was Prop 48, the first academic situation like that. But look at how it turned out. And I was going to the mat, no questions, no question at all because of who I felt he was. But even what I felt then wasn't even close to who he is and to be around him every day and see that work ethic. And then to see how that has translated into this career that he has on and off the floor. Uh, but there's a personality about him. There's an energy about him. I said humility, uh, confidence, but he is a teammate. It, 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 I've coached some great players phenomenal people he's at the top of the list when it comes to great teammate and and no matter how big he got in college and I think this has been the way it's been in the NBA for him he's remained absolutely true to his teammates and to wanting to see them be successful and uh, that's an incredible trait Anthony Edwards has that trait I see that trait I saw that trait when he was with us at the age of 18 and I see it now manifests itself all the time when he when he's playing in Minnesota. That's an incredible trait for guys to have. And most of my guys that have been successful have had that, Brendan, but Dwayne leads the way with that. It's such a it's such a strong thing. To, and the hardest thing for a coach to do is to take many coaches are afraid, I think, and I want your opinion on this. But I saw I've seen a lot of coaches at the college level, but more even in the pro level, the ones that struggle with coaching great talent and the reason is because they're scared too and i think you know doc rivers was a player of mine and who i drafted in atlanta and when he went to boston uh and doc you know never wanted to be a coach told me to go f myself when i told him i thought he'd be a good coach because of his personality and everything he told me yeah go f yourself mm -hmm. i can't stand coaches and all this now he's on his 24th year of coaching in the nba and i love it now because what he did is he he took Pierce and Ray Allen and, you know, KG and just, they, they demanded that they coach him. and that's, and he wasn't afraid to. And I, give me your thoughts on that. 
it's like a, an advanced oh, placement student, right? You know, a, a break. You well, know, your... yes, yes. But it's almost like, okay, I never had one and done's till I got to Indiana. Right. Right. And, and Noah Vonley was the first and we had Anthony Edwards. Uh, but I learned early on, I learned it as Dwayne got better. And, and I saw Tom Izzo do this and they, and they weren't one and done type players, but every coach I worked for, be it my high school coach, Denny Kuyper, my first college coach, Ralph Pym at Alma College, uh, Ralph Willard, uh, Tom Izzo, those guys, and I think Tom learned it from Judd, they were never afraid to coach the stars, right? right? I, so that helped me. That helped me. But then as the game has changed and the way guys come and go has changed and the way they can leave early has changed, you have to not be afraid to do that. And I think to, here's what happens. I think guys – they get afraid to make a guy better, okay? And then I've heard this theory, which I always wanted to coach against these guys, right? Well, we're only going to have them for nine months. We're only going to have them for nine months. Man, that's nine months that are going to be the most important nine months maybe of his life yep. going into this point because you're going to set the table for what he's going to do when he's going to get to his next coach. And the bottom line is it starts with the relationship, and it starts with you being – you got to be tactful, okay? I, and and sure. I've learned a lot about that over the years. But you've got to be fearless when it comes to making them better. And, and that fearlessness comes from your vision for them, right? Like if your vision is strong enough for somebody, okay, you're going to have a fearlessness in getting it across to them because you want it for them, right? Yeah, yeah, you want to win and you want to be successful, but you want it for them because you see something inside of them that maybe somebody has told them about Maybe somebody has bragged to them about, maybe somebody hopes that they can get it, but you, man, you actually see it and you're in a position where you can help do something about it. And I think to me, Brendan, that is so important, right? That you, you, you've got to be fearless in how you go with it. But it, if you're not committed to that vision with them, they know it, right? Oh. Like they're not going to like it. If they like that you're on them, if they like that you're pushing them, if they like that you're forcing them, to drive with their left hand, score with their left hand, step into their three, stay down in a stance, okay? It, 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 nobody likes that, okay? But when you're committed to it and you're with them every day and you've got an energy that they've got to live up to, see, I think that's that's so important. You've got to drive the energy and enthusiasm train as a coach, okay? And, and you got to set that tone as a head coach. And I see too many assistant coaches – that think they're going to be head coaches that have no clue what that means. No clue. And, and I was always taught, okay, that as an assistant coach, you bring enthusiasm and intensity every day, right? Every day you bring those things. Those are non-negotiable culture, whatever buzzword you want to use, those are there. And then as you get better, okay, now you understand the details of what goes into it. Now you have a stick to a longevity to it. You can't ever let a bad game, uh, a losing streak, a winning streak, the, 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 the doldrums of the season, you know, the, uh, you can't ever let that stuff infiltrate you. And, and look at the success you had. You guys had success in, in your career because you not only won the big games, you won all those games you were supposed to win, right? You won those games. That's what separated Chuck Daly. That's what separates Pat Riley. They won the games they were supposed to win. You see too many teams right now, they don't win the games they're supposed to win, right? Because of, is it load management? You know, whatever it is, right? They let their guard down. And I think with great players, 
they will know, okay, you're not coaching them just for them being there with you. And I think too many coaches make that mistake. You're coaching them for where they can go. And if you don't teach them how to be professionals, okay, when they're with you, what being on time is all about, what practicing through fatigue is all about, what, what coming back day after day, what coming back later that day is all about, you're cheating them. You're absolutely cheating them. And I don't ever want that to be attributed to me. And, and uh, I think looking at what we've done with those players, they understood how to go in there and be professionals. And, and everybody, with the exception of one, that's been eligible for a second contract, they've gotten it. And, and some much more than a second contract. And now guys like uh, Anthony Edwards, he's, he'll, he'll be ready for his, you know, when his comes. Because he's 21 and he's like he's 26, 27 out there because we had to go through a lot of hard days with him to get him to understand, man, this is what it's like every day. This is what you've got to bring every day. And I get so much joy watching him play because I watch him learn. And, and, I, and I mean, the most joy I get in a game with him is not just how he plays, but then how he talks about his teammates after the game, right? Like that's... That's what you want in your yeah. team. That's what you want in your players. You you get to watch a lot of games this year that more than when you know when you're when you're coaching a team in college, mm-hmm. all you're focused on is your next opponent and other opponents on your schedule. And now you can look at everyone play college and pro. But since pros start much earlier than college, you probably have some really strong opinions and observations about the NBA game that maybe you didn't get a chance to focus on when you're coaching in college because you're worried about the college game. You don't give a damn about what the hell's happening at the pro level as far as them. What do you, Give me some of your thoughts because you always think at a level that I think is so exciting to me because you see things that others don't. Well, I, I think this. I think there's a lot of great teachers in the NBA. Obviously, there's a lot of great coaching teachers. But I think what happens too many times is we keep the coaching and the teaching, and then we go or the, we coach the game, okay, rather than reminding players what they've got to do. I think it, I think it happens so many times on jump shots. A guy fades on the free throw line. A guy falls off the line. A guy not down in his stance. You not only as a head coach have got to be locked into that. You've got to have a staff because, because at the end of the day, players still need reminders, right? They still need reminders. And the one thing that's been really good for me this year has been to go see my former players like actually play in person, not just see them on television. And you realize when you're sitting there with them before a game or talking to them after a game, that relationship is what they've got to have, right? Like they, if they have that relationship, they feel really good with their coach. If they don't, okay, they know they don't. And and I think what happens is the best coaches, the best teams in the NBA, they don't let it become more of a business with the relationship with the player than they do what it actually means. How do I get this guy better every day? And I think in this world, it's shocking to me how little practice there is in the NBA. And I think it's getting more and more. And I think you're seeing it more and more in walkthroughs. I think you're seeing it more. Uh, the travel has changed. It's, it's, it's not uncommon for teams, obviously, to play a game uh, at night and then not leave until sometime the next day to either go home or to go to the next city rather than that night, which is all good for the science of the sport and science of the sleep. But, but again, there's other times they're not getting in the gym and practicing. And I think when I see that, I think that's really, really important because there's so many different ways that you've got to find to make a guy better 
in the NBA game because of the level of opponent that they're playing against. And I think the best coaches uh, are not afraid of confrontation. They're not afraid of demands. Obviously, they have to have attack. But this is something that I think fits all pro sports and college sports. And Tony La Russa told me this a long, long time ago. He said, there's no such thing as a void in a player's life, right? Like, there might be something missing, okay? But it's going to get filled up quickly. It never remains a void. So, like, if you're not filling those voids, if you're not filling that player, okay, with with what they've got to have, somebody's filling it for them. Okay, could be could be family, could be uh, an agent, could be a representative, could be a friend, you know, could be a hanger on, uh, you know, a wannabe, somebody that's on the payroll. Right. For that person, you know, it's that you got to fill that. Right. And I think you've got to not only be a head coach and do that, but you've got to have a staff that recognizes that. And and you'll be friends with your players long after you're done coaching them, if you coach them in a harder way, in a demanding way, in a way that they absolutely look back at and respect. Because because not only are they going to continue to play the game, not only are they going to be in business, they're going to have families if they don't already. They're going to have families. And those things that you put into them, whether they're in college or whether they're a young pro in the NBA or whether that's somebody that's growing as a pro, they're taking a reflection off of you right? Like they see you every day. You're giving them things. And I think that's really, really important. And I think that has as much to do with winning and chemistry as anything else outside of talent and ability. Tom, you and I both believe strongly in relationships. And and and, and nowadays, the, one of the key words is the ability to connect mm-hmm. with that guy. And what is... And everyone has their own style. You know, it doesn't matter. You, you know, it doesn't matter who the guy is or gal is. Uh, what are the most important parts of relationship building that you try to emphasize with your players? You've got to build a way to go deep with them, right? And and especially in college. And, and you've got to build a way, okay? And what happens when you're a basketball coach and you're coaching basketball players, your relationship good, bad, or indifferent starts with basketball, Yeah, right? I mean, it's just, hey, you may grow up, you know, you may live in a neighborhood and you're going to recruit a kid from three doors down that you've known for 14 years, but that's pretty rare, right? <laughs> so like you're going to build a relationship uh, through basketball, but it can't just be basketball, but basketball brings it together. You know, how you make them improve, how you make them handle themselves. I think helping people right now see what they look like when they think nobody's looking or they're just sitting there right? Like helping them understand that you've got to have a level of empathy that for other people, that you've got to be a great teammate, that you've got to want to see other people be successful, that you've got to be able to manage differences and problems and have the tools to do that. Because so many of the people that you get in coaching, they're going through things. And if you don't dig deep, okay, they've built up an ability to keep it in. They've built up an ability to mask it, especially with how much attention young athletes get and how many times they're in front of a microphone or how many times they're in front of a writer, how many times they're on stage. They've learned how to build those things in. Well, that's not reality. And if you don't get a hold of that early, okay, if you don't get a hold of that when they're with you, now all of a sudden they move on into their life of business, their life of 
playing overseas, their life of going into something, but in a lot of cases, their life of professional basketball. And all of a sudden they got all this money and all these people that are around them telling them how good they look, how smart they are, what they should wear. Here's what my stylist says. Here's what my, my public relations person says. And they got these issues that they can't fix. Right. And that doesn't mean that you're a psychiatrist or a psychologist. It means you care. It means that you will dive into them. It means that you're not afraid to get to know them and and get to the root of what their issue is. And a lot of people think they're doing that. But like if we were outside, we're just skimming the dirt. Okay, like we're picking the dandelions. We're picking at the root. Well, no, no, you didn't touch the root. Mm -hmm. Right, The root could be way down in that dirt. Right. Right. And that root could be one inch, three inches. It could be a foot down there. You've got to be willing to go down in there and do that. If you're going to if you're going to separate yourself as a coach and have longevity and you're afraid of that, you're not going to do those things. You'll get you'll have a job. There's plenty of coaching opportunities for people that that want to live that way. But you're never, ever going to have deep rooted relationships with your players where they're going to call back on you years after you're done coaching them and ask you what you think about a situation that may have nothing to do with basketball. And I think that's what the separator is. And you can't be afraid to do that. I love it. I love that era. Thousand percent right. Your brother-in-law, both of them are uh, tremendous football coaches and you and I study football like crazy because I think Mm -hmm. they're they're the best. (laughs) They're just the best. And most of my learning actually comes on the football side is Bob Starkey, who's one of our other people that we learn from, you know, Musselman's the same way. He learns from baseball, football, very few basketball. I mean, he's studying those guys. Uh, I think brother-in-law Jim at Michigan coming from, I mean, he did division three university of San Diego to Stanford to 49ers to Michigan. I mean, he's done the whole deal dealing with different people and situations, but he has really done some job and stuff like that. And I was really impressed with him this year, not by being undefeated, but the way he handled the quarterback controversy in the beginning of the year and J.J. McCarthy and how this player, he just exuded so much confidence into him. And then the more I read about him, about his mindset training and how he meditates before every game, but when he when he had a rough game in the playoffs, how Jim is over there hugging and consoling him after throwing the ball away. Talk about that as as a coach of eighty eight people or a hundred hundred. I think one JJ said one day after a game in his interview, we have hundred and thirty three people in our program here at Michigan. And I don't well, know if he's including think, staff, et cetera, but you know. Oh, I'm sure it, it, it's probably more to be yeah. honest with you. And I think I'll start with this with both of them. Uh, that's how their dad coached. That's how Jack, Jack coaches. Jack that's was how, like that. Uh, my mother-in-law, Jackie, lives her life, right? I mean, it's, it's my wife, Joni, could go be a coach. She could do anything she wanted, but she could be a coach uh, and, and have ultra success with it because they have empathy, right? And it's like, it's like when you're building uh, a crowd base. Like I've always thought that how you build your program, okay, when it comes to game day atmosphere, game operations, that's one of the three most important jobs you can have as a coach, right? It's X's and O's, it's recruiting, certainly, okay, and the, and the relationships with the players fall into all of that, but you've got to build game operations. If you look at it and say, hey, we just got to get to a number, right? We got to get, we got to sell this out. You're not looking at each individual for how important they are to your crowd. Every person matters. It sounds like an old cliche. Well, it's true. Every person matters. You've got to think about how do you attract 
each person to those games. Well, I think that's coaching, right? And I think the beauty of Jim and the beauty of John and some of my great friends in coaching, Mike McCarthy is like this, like those guys, they dive into the player. They're not afraid. And it's not just about the star. Yeah. Right. It's it, it's also uh, about the third string running back. Right. It's about the special teamers. It was a rookie free agent. And I think in Jim's case and in John's case, and it's so important for coaches to understand this. John got started as a graduate assistant. OK, that's how he moved up the ladder as a coach. Um, he went into the NFL. He was a special teams coach with the Eagles for many, many years and one of the best in the business. Spent one year as a defensive backs coach working under Jim Johnson. Okay, the late, great Jim Johnson, defensive yep. coordinator of Andy Reid's Eagles, because he knew he needed something else if he was going to be a head coach. Well, you know what? Long before he was the defensive backs coach of the Eagles, he was sitting in Jim Johnson's meetings as a special teams coach because he wanted to learn. How about in that? Jim's case, he spent 16 years in the NFL. Okay, and 16 years. And one thing that's crazy about Jim is the last four years of his NFL life, they have summer awards, right? Like for off-season awards and things like that. Jim won an award all four of his last four years of the NFL. Not his four best years in the NFL, but his four last years in the NFL for being a guy that had was 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 at the most off-season workouts, did the most at the site as far as like the training and all those different things, and won offensive player awards that had nothing to do with throwing a football, right? Well, he plays in the NFL, and instead of going into coaching um, somewhere or going into business, he turned down an opportunity to be, uh, I think he turned down an opportunity to be on the board of trustees at Michigan. He turned down an opportunity to be in the radio team of the Colts. He went as a quality control coach with the Oakland Raiders. And, wow. and right after his career, three nights a week, he would sleep on the floor in his office. It wasn't even an air mattress that he had. Some nights he'd sleep in his chair, okay, because he lived 45, 50 minutes away from home. And so he would just sleep in there. I mean, he would do his work all day long, and then he'd get work that he'd have to do at night. A normal, a normal day for him was literally 6, 7, 8 in the morning till 11, 12, 1 o'clock at night, all throughout the week as a former NFL quarterback. So he proved early that he could do this job. Right. Wow. He wasn't a former player just trying to get a, a, a job. He was committed to being a coach. And in his second year, he also became the assistant quarterback coach inside of there. Mark Tressman was the offensive coordinator. He loved Mark. And and we're at the final four in New Orleans. OK. And Nick Saban's a friend of mine and he's the coach at LSU. And we got him a bunch of tickets for himself, his staff, Terry, uh, some boosters. So they were behind our bench. Jim came in with Mike Lombardi from Oakland, okay, to watch the game. I'm coaching the game. Well, at halftime, Nick and Jim strike up a conversation, and Nick starts quizzing Jim about two-minute offense because Jim was a tremendous two-minute offensive player, you know, when he was a quarterback. And he started quizzing Jim on a bunch of questions, and, and, he, and, and he energized Jim because of some of those questions to dive into two-minute offense. He ended up being the two-minute offensive coordinator for the Raiders as a quality control coach and assistant quarterback coach his second year in the NFL. And rather than stay the path of working up as an assistant, a coordinator, maybe become a college head coach, he took over USD. He took over San Diego. Mm -hmm. Josh Johnson, one of his quarterbacks, is still in the NFL. Okay, Todd Jeez. Mortensen, his first quarterback, was in the NFL for a while. But Josh Johnson, I think, is 14, 15 years in the NFL, and he played for Jim at San Diego. So it goes all the way back 
to the work that he did, not only as a pro, but what he did at USD. And then you look at what he did uh, at Stanford with Tavita Pritchard as his first quarterback, then with Andrew Luck, uh, what he did in the NFL, having Alex Smith and then bringing Colin Kaepernick into the program and eventually replacing uh, Alex Smith with Colin going to the Super Bowl. And then what he's done at Michigan, he is a hands-on visionary. Like he he sees where you should be, but he's hands-on on making sure that you get there. John's the same way. You know, John is the absolute same way. And it's real, right? Like that's why those guys, people can't figure them out, especially Jim sometimes. Jim is not complicated, okay? He is a competitive, get after you. I want to win at anything I do. And I'm going to make this team and these individual players as good as they can possibly be. He wants greatness out of everybody that's in the program. And I feel like I try to be like that. John is like that. And they are not afraid to confront and demand what it takes for you to be great. And I think that's why they're so successful. Uh, The business that we're in uh, seems to be about winning. Uh, Mm -hmm. You have strong feelings about that. And, you know, I think a lot of people say, oh, kids at the college level, they're here for an education. Of course they are. But I... I haven't seen too many guys get released because they grade point averages or anything like that. It's usually comes down to winning the importance of winning in everything that you do, whether it even be drills or the games, et cetera. Give me some of your philosophy on that. Cause I know you have a strong, well, component of I that. think it's, I think it's changing so much, obviously, right? Like NIL, the portal, how easy it is to transfer the, the third and fourth year, or third, three and four school guys, right? Amazing. And how easy it is to get a waiver process. And, and we'll see if that changes. I'm not convinced it will. Maybe it will. But all these different things that go into it, and they're not all bad, right? Mm-hmm. They're not all bad at all, okay? They're not bad at all. What's bad is you get away from what's most important, and that is your level of improvement. And that is coming together in a winning way. And, and, that, is, and that is figuring out, when you come into a program, whether you're a freshman or whether you're a transfer player, that your success is going to hinge on your teammates, right? It is absolutely going to hinge. You can think anything you want. Now, if you can get an individual spot on a golf team or a tennis team, but they still aren't winning championships without everybody playing well either, right? Mm-hmm. And I think what happens is, is all this stuff goes on and we forget that we have absolutely got to get better every day because what matters are the things like Pete Carrill said, you want to be great at the things you do the most, right? We run the floor both ways. We rebound on both ends, okay? You've got to talk on both ends of the floor. You've got to play in a stance offensively and defensively. If you're, I, I, One of the greatest epidemics in basketball right now, not only in the NBA, but certainly in college, is the lack of guys being ready to catch the ball to shoot the ball. Right. The amount of times the ball comes into their body rather than making an aggressive catch, the more they're standing up, but yet they're still going to shoot the ball. Right. Or they're going to try to drive it. And they weren't down. Okay, last year at Georgia, my last year at Georgia, the two hardest things to get understood on a team that was really new because we'd lost a lot of guys to the portal and we brought a lot of new guys in was to get them to truly understand what spacing was all about. NBA three point line spacing. And we actually put a four point line down. I got the idea from Brett Brown that we put our idea. Great idea, because. It teaches downhill driving. It teaches spacing. You're not always going to shoot the ball from there. I'm not saying that. Now, you want to have a long career in the NBA and you're a guard, you better develop range, right, that you can get out 
and move out further. But it's more about where you catch and it's more about the driving ability and, the, and getting guys to understand the space, okay, and being able to utilize the space and move without the ball. And then here's the other thing, having an open mind to change. So many guys are coming up right now, and it might be the same way on the ladies' side. I haven't asked enough ladies' coaches, but they're, they're, it's got to be the same with human dynamics. They feel set in their ways. They really don't want to change, right? They left a school. They don't want to accept any responsibility for what they didn't do, right? And it's not all the coaching. It's not all the system. It's a combination of things, right? And, and if you get away from improvement, if you get away from being a teammate, if you get away from being able to impact the game when the game is not going well for you, okay, if you can't play under duress, fatigue, and adversity, you're not going to win. If you don't want to watch your teammate and help them get better inside of a practice, inside of a film session, inside of a shooting workout, whatever it is, it's going to catch you. And I think, I think there's ways to simplify this in basketball. I think there's ways to, if I could go back and do it again right now, uh, like I said, I probably had five of the nine years at Indiana. We had five of those teams were in the top 10 and three-point percentage playing at Indiana nationally. And at, at Georgia, we weren't even close, right? Because I thought I could do a better job with the shooting and get guys. And we had some good shooters. And it wasn't a part, you know, it wasn't about development. I mean, Nick Claxton had to guard one through five for us in one year. Now he's doing it in the NBA because that was his skill set. Anthony Edwards had to learn a lot about practice and playing. Well, he had to learn how to move without the ball. He had to learn how to commit to, to a defensive stance and not just gamble because he was so strong and quicker than everybody else. Like development is monster, but you've got to have a system that guys can get comfortable in. And I think when you're getting a system, whatever, whatever sport it is, basketball, since we're talking about it, more set plays, things that allow them to gain some confidence, but build the concepts all along the way. Right. Don't get away from fundamentals and development. Don't get away from teaching them spacing and movement. Don't get away from teaching them how to play. But you've got to have something that they can come together on. Okay, that they can that they can get some confidence in early rather than guys trying to do their own thing. Because I I could take the ball out of the equation watching a lot of these games and watch body language, mannerisms, who's ready to shoot, who's down in a stance. And I could tell you if they're going to win or lose the game without ever seeing the ball. Wow. And if you and if you just watch the weak side of the ball, if you just because I think the game is won or lost on the weak side offensively and defensively because of the movement, because of the help defense, because of being ready to shoot, because of closing out, because of driving closeouts, because of the way you rebound, the way you get back. If you just watched away from the ball, OK, and you didn't watch the ball and you wanted to gamble, I'm not a better, but I'd probably make some money right? Could probably make some money gambling, not watching the ball, because you can tell who's going to be successful based on how they play away from the ball, how they play uh, when the ball's not in their hands, you know, how they move. We could talk about it forever, but I think those are the things that separate teams because, because it's so easy right now to get into your own world. And it's so easy right now to take a break, not only defensively or offensively, and you kill your team when you're standing straight up. You kill your team when you're not moving without the ball. You kill your team when you make it harder for your teammates to be successful because you weren't ready to play yourself. Tom, in watching, let's say, both NBA and college games, and now as an analyst, uh, you know, style of play uh, at the NBA level seems to be 
it, it, like it was in football a lot a long, a while ago where everyone's running a spread offense. Now everyone, many teams are running five out offenses where the floor is spread out and sure. stuff like that versus years past when there's more set plays, the best players on your team, the highest the guys that you really want to shoot and stuff are getting the most shots. Um, you know, uh, your thoughts about that style of play should there be more a hybrid or blend of it? Uh, your opinion? Well, I think I think you've got in this day and age, especially in the college game, right? High school is a little different, obviously, because you've sure. got kids coming up. But in the college game, because there's so much change, okay, the set play part of it, that helping them gain confidence early while you're building what you really want, I think is important. But let's use five out as an example. I think five out, the way some teams run it right now, is an absolute joke, okay, because I'll watch teams that they'll play through the bigs. Maybe the big can't shoot it, okay? Well, when you look down at the floor, when you don't catch the ball ready to shoot, okay, when you never see the rim when you catch the ball, you're not leaving any doubt. Yeah. And then I see defenses, Brendan, that like instead of taking something away, well, we're not going to guard them. Well, standing at the foul line, defending the guy at the high post, that's not taking anything away from anybody, right? Now, standing in the paint where people can't cut, now that's taken away something from somebody. Get I would smother people right now when they caught the ball if they were a non-player because so or non-shooter I should say because they look like a non-player because they caught the ball straight up. Yeah. There's so much five out being run that nothing gets done off the top of the key because all you do is bring the help into it. I learned from Jim O'Brien when he was with the Pacers, my first year in Indiana. I learned a lot from him. But the one thing I learned from him, one of the most brilliant coaches I've ever been around is I learned from him, which I'd never heard or thought of. He always wanted the top of the key open. You know, once the initial action was run, when he got to the NBA, once the initial action was run, the point guard brought it down. He wanted the top of the key open for shakes, cuts, uh, movement, okay? Get the ball in movement rather than having somebody stand at the top of the key, okay? Pass the ball, jog, well, what's that do? What, what are all defenses built on? Elbow block, and every time you can cover the nail, okay, right. you've done your job, right? Like, if you can cover the nail up, and so all of a sudden, not only can the guy guarding the nail, when the guy's standing at the top, guard his man in the ball, he's cutting off everything at the top. He can basically guard three people, yep. right, if you're standing at the nail because the guy's standing at the top of the key. Now, you open up that top of the key. It changed my offensive philosophy big time, Okay. That and adding the cutting game, even more so than what we'd had at Marquette when I got to Indiana, helped us become a great three-point shooting team. All right, recruiting shooters did, but making spacing a priority and movement. And when I watch five out right now, it's so easy to guard because people are standing straight up. They're dribbling the ball to their man in a handoff rather than driving it as a defender. The rolls are slow, Okay. And then what's what's happening now? You can really separate a team in this drain. I'm all for driving kick and downhill driving and rub cuts and all that. But if you're gonna scream, like you gotta set a screen. Right. Right. It it this game has become so much about that. I see this all the time. We're gonna run a slip on a pick and roll, right? Okay. Well, wait, setting the screen for a guy getting open off the wing, you can't slip that all the time. You can only slip that if that's part of your offense and and, and reading how they played, but when I don't see that physical contact in getting people open because defenses, especially as you get later in the year, they get fatigued. They take talking for granted. So what of a sudden, all of a sudden happens, they don't talk as much. 
they take all those drills where we taught them to come together to touch and switch. They yeah. get away from that and their separation because slippage comes because there's less practice time and we're more focused on scheming for the game we got coming up than strategizing on how we're going to make our team better in their skills. And I think that's the stuff that I see. And I think the other thing, there's not nearly enough throw aheads on the break, driving skips, driving the throw ahead making the pass, getting off the top of the key, getting into a drag screen, making the kick quick, vacating the top, because transition defenses are so poor. And you know why they're poor? They're not poor because they're poorly taught. Okay, in most cases, they're poor because guys get discouraged when they miss a shot. Guys get discouraged, all right, when they get fouled and they didn't get the call. Guys miss a layup and they wonder how they missed the layup and the guard is the last one back or the bigs aren't there. We lose to Kansas in the 2003 Final Four. We had an excellent team, right? We just beaten Kentucky in the Elite Eight. We missed more zero and one footers in that game that cost us early because Roy Williams and his fast break were so good. And Nick Collison got out every time and Heinrich and Aaron Miles and Keith Langford and all those guys were gone, right? So my bigs, they were disappointed. They, they, they were great kids. They didn't mean to miss. But they were behind the play because we were missing close shots. Now, that's one thing. I look at guys now. They're standing there waiting for the call, wondering why they missed, mad that this didn't happen, mad that that didn't happen. And all of a sudden, you got a guard back there that can't defend the ball. And, and, and transition defense is not being exploited nearly enough right now in the college game. Hey, hey, Tom, on the transition defense, you remember back in the old days, I remember going to see uh, the L.A. Clippers when, when Lawrence Frank was the defensive coordinator. And I I mean, this is when Doc was first out there, and I went out to see uh, training camp. And I'll never forget, Lawrence would teach it the way we all taught it back in the old days in college. He'd tell the first guy back on defense, and many times it was a point guard, put your head under the rim. Yeah. Put your head under the rim. And then build ourselves out. Well, you do that nowadays. You, you know, Steph Curry puts his head, or you put your head under the rim. Steph Curry comes down and shoots a three on you. You know, I mean, you don't even oh, get. Yeah. And, and so, every but you got to get back first. You know, no, you got to get back. It's I, I, one of the. I've, I've been around some great teachers of transition defense, but I'm not sure I've been around a better one than Kevin O'Neill. And I never coached with Kevin, but learning from Kevin and Kevin's, knowing Kevin and watching his videos. Kevin's theories were so much about rim, ball, help, and then bumping out the guard. But the bottom line is there's there's so much happening in no man's land, right? Like no man's land is basically uh, probably the couple feet above the NBA three-point line to a couple feet above the NBA three-point line on the other end, right? Yeah. There's so much traffic in there. Like you, it looks like LA, an LA freeway a lot of times at five o'clock on a, on a weekday, right? Yeah. Like, it's crazy. Instead of getting out and running, okay, first three steps on the break. Used to be the first two to me. Now it's the first three. Getting out wide, running to the corners, running for the layup. Whatever you're going to do with your rim runner, whether you're going to run him to the rim, whether you're going to run him to the block, whether you're going to run him to the elbow, whether you're going to run him to the short corner, run him, right? Get him somewhere, okay? And if it's a slow to blade break, then get him into a rub or a drag. And then how do you play with your trailer? You know, I, I spent more time on our break, because I always looked at our break, it was like a motion offense. Okay, I was not a motion offense coach in right. the half court, but I felt like our break should be our motion offense. It should be very hard. To tell me how, how you did that. I love that. Well, we did a lot of personnel stuff. 
like with Victor Oladipo, when we had him, he he made such a rise as a three-point shooter. Like he went from shooting 14% in the Big Ten from three as a sophomore to 47% as a junior. Wow. But most of his threes were going to come on square up, drive and kick. Then we're going to come off the break, right? So he became a much better three-point shooter. Where early on, when he wasn't a very good shooter, we'd run him to the short corner. And we could do that because we had a guy like Cody Zeller that could go from – he was – Cody Zeller as a freshman and sophomore. As a freshman, his equal was Anthony Davis, okay, when it came to running the floor. As a sophomore, he had no equal. He did not have one, right? So what Cody Zeller was so much better at as a sophomore – was he could pass out of 15 feet, right? So, like, you could run Cody Zeller to the rim. I just let Cody do what he wants, do what he wants. And 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 Victor, if he was out in front, he got to the short corner. Um, but if it was Jordan Halls, he'd get to the left, he'd get to the corner, right? Like, run your break based on the personnel of your team, yep. but get wide. And, and then if you were out in front, make sure, if, if you were behind the guy, make sure he knew you were coming. But to me, it was all about the trailer. You know, how far away could you get the trailer from the ball, right? And now, if you were going to run a drag or if you were going to run a handoff, you still set your cut up, okay, by going away from the ball. Never running to the top of the key, never running to the elbow, but basically running to the pro lane elbow extended. Okay. So running it to the slot because it would create separation because if I'm a good transition defensive coach and I see the ball is stopped and I see the rim is covered, I'm getting into those elbows, right? Like I'm going to take the elbows, right? And so how could we eliminate the elbow help in the break? And um, that's to me what it was. And then how you played through your trailer. But I, I, we did a lot of things at Indiana and even tried to do this at Georgia. We called it a leopard offense. We would spend seven to 10 minutes a day and on moving guys around into different spots. Like I never said, you're the five man. I said, you're in the five spot. Right. And not just because people don't want to see themselves as a five in college. Right. Everybody sees themselves as a one or a three. Right. I mean, that's that's what it is. So that's cool. We're going to play that way. Right. Like my my thing was always like, if you can't guard it, you can't play it. Right. So like that's how we got guys to get better. Right. Like Nick Claxton ran as much offense for us his sophomore year at Georgia as our point guard did. I had 13 plays that were just for him. I had nine plays for Cody Zeller that he was the point guard on those plays because he could set the offense because he was comfortable handling the ball. He was comfortable driving the ball. He was comfortable now coming off a ball screen, especially from a guard. So when you move people around into different spots, you're teaching them the game. You're teaching them the value of everybody else's position, right? And and it's so important. It's like everybody should understand how hard the job is for the quarterback in football, right? Like you should understand what's coming at that guy when he's behind the line of scrimmage, right? Whether he's in the shotgun, whether he's in a snap, whatever it is, man, they're coming at you. All right. And if people really understood everybody else's position, okay, they, they would, they would understand how important it is that they play their position. Right. Yeah. Right. So to me, guys learning different positions, being able to space the floor to a drop of a hat was really, really important. So a lot of times I would get our point guard is the trailer. All right. And I would have, we, we wanted to have five to six guys that could inbound the ball. Okay. Maybe there was a clear cut number one, but I wanted there to be two, three, four, five, and six that were so similar because they were so good at getting it out because we could change the game and they would drop a hat by having a new inbounder. And that stuff to me was how you ran a motion offense on the break, right? You kept the court 
space. You'd be very hard to guard. You threw it ahead and played out of it. And then if you went into your secondaries, you went into your secondaries. Tom, how would you, if you're coaching now, NBA pro or college level, how would you, assuming you have very good personnel, uh, you know, uh, how would you defend pick and rolls on the side and pick and rolls in the middle and then the horns angle pick and roll? I think there's three different angles that are really important. Well, to me in college, in college, okay, I would get under more middle pick and roll. Okay. I really would. And, and uh, there's, there's people that are good at turning a corner. I would really work even that much harder. I'm pushing the defender of the ball under, right. I would still work on my switching every day. And and if we could switch throughout the game, great, but you got to be able to switch at the end of the clock with the side. I think there's a cup. The switch is great. I think right now, the more that you can keep your team out of rotation on the strong side with two or the weak side with one, right? Wherever wherever your shake is, right? If you can keep that tag out of the equation of being a major factor as much as possible, and switching allows you to do that. Switching allows you, obviously, to stay home with your man. I think you're going to be better off. Uh, in the break, okay, we always wanted our, our trail big, whoever's going to guard that guy, to get to the elbow and navigate from there, right? And okay. And... and we made some changes based on the way Jay Wright, when I was in the Big East, the way that he would run so many good drags, okay, is is we started getting over the top, okay, um, switching the role with the corner man, okay, and having that guy take the corner, get over the top and either hedge it or blitz it, okay, the guard get back to the ball, and then the forward or the big that jumped up on the ball screen, he would now take the shake. So, so again, your, your man in the corner has got to be able to deal with the post, but we just teach that guy to front till we could. And that was before I understood scramming and things of that nature, but get that guy down in the paint, get him to front it and try to get in the way so they can't get a clean roll. But the thing that I would do above all else, no matter what my coverages were, whether whatever it was, because I see this as a huge weakness right now with teams that are really good. I mean, teams that are not as good versus teams that are really good, right. how active they are with their hands. There are teams right now, there's teams in the top 20, top 25 that are, I, I think are pathetic with how they use their hands defensively in the pick and roll because they want to be vertically. They see themselves as good because they're vertically long rather than showing their length with their hands being out, rather than playing the guard for the pocket pass. Um, and, and, and I don't think it's exploited enough. I don't think the pocket pass is nearly as good as it could be. It should be way better universally now than what it is. And I think the other thing with bigs, I was up at Marquette last week and I was telling Shaka Smart this. One of the reasons I think his bigs and his pick and roll game is so good when their bigs catch the ball, they don't just try to broad jump you and make a play. They try to get the dribble out and go around you. They try to go around the help or go into the help. And now you're creating contact. You're creating a, a foul. And I think we've always tried to teach guys to do that. Get to the other side of the board. Right. Like get the dribble out. And I think those things are there because because bigs right now, whether you're in a drop coverage, whether you're in a big show, whether you're in a switch, whatever it is, they're too high. Right. They're too high up and down and their hands aren't close. So I would base my my pick and roll coverages based on how good we were. I always say, okay, it's not just four hands and four feet on the ball. It's 10 hands, it's 10 feet on the ball, 
and it's five brains, right? You got to have all five people locked in to that ball. And that doesn't mean that they're going to overhelp because that kills defense. It doesn't mean that they're going to go for a steal. It means they're alert and aware. Their hands are up. They're active. There's not nearly enough elbow help coming off a middle pick and roll. Where does the guard not want to usually throw the ball on the pick and roll, Brandon? He usually doesn't want to throw it to the easiest place. Yeah. All right. Which is the next guy in the slot. He wants to hit the corner. He wants to hit the roll. He wants to get to the rim. He wants to skip it to the corner. Those are all great plays. Okay. Well, somebody's got to be able to help stop the ball and stop the bleeding so that the guard can get back in the ball. And I think the other thing right now with the switch game is you're seeing more and more guards that don't want to fight that big and get in front on the roll. And bigs aren't taking advantage the way that they can with sprinting to the basket, getting that tip dunk, getting in position to get a basket. Right. They're almost letting the guard body them rather than sprinting by the guard that really doesn't want to hit them. Yeah. You know, one of the things, Tom, I, I, I really think that as coaches at the college and pro level we're missing is post-offense, post-defense. Mm-hmm. No one wants to double-team the post except for a few guys, no one in the NBA. But in the in the college game, you have Tony Bennett, you know, comes with the other sure. big, you know, et cetera. But I, I think, you know, or if you're playing against Matt Painter's team because he's got the most dominant big in, in college, in Zach. Uh, but I, I really think college coaches have built this fear in their mind uh, and pro coaches of that we don't want to trap because we'll give up a three, you know, which frankly, to me, that's the poorest passer usually on the team is the guy in the post. It's the most condensed area. And you can come at him not just from the ball, but you can come from the weak side. You can come from all different angles and change up mm-hmm. even. But I think uh, it, it's really a neat place to trap someone because there are limits of where they can really throw the ball. And I don't think the coaches offensively are very creative once you are trapped in the post. Thoughts? Well, what they don't have, what's not there anymore is like what you had with Chuck Daly and Mike Fratello is the XYZ traps. Amen. Right? And yep. and and it's not there. And again, to me, one of the best You get bonus to- points for remembering that, by the oh, way. Oh, I remember all that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So we're going to send you, we'll send you a Coaching You Plus app. Yeah, you get that, right? That's how I learned, yeah. I learned all that that way from you guys. And, but I think the digging off the off the pass is a very... It's not hard to teach. It's not hard to teach what to do to defend the splits. It protects your weak side. Okay. Like when I was with Ralph Willard, we he was a masterful teacher yes. at teaching how to post double from the top and X out. Like masterful, right? And and Kelvin Sampson's a great doubler. Um to me, I think it's like anything else. You got to teach your bigs how to handle the ball. You got to teach your guards how to post up. Well, you got to teach your guards how to be post defenders. Two of my best post defenders ever were Victor Aladipo and Yogi Ferrell because they would sit in your legs. Yogi. And Anthony Edwards was well on the way. If we'd have had Anthony Edwards one more year, which we weren't going to have, but one more year with his strength, he would have been phenomenal, right? Because those guys would sit on your legs. And what you see, and I see this in the college game more and more now all the time, these bigs, they don't want anybody in the front of their body. They don't want anybody sitting on their legs, right? So, okay. So whether you post double or whether you front – Right. Getting a guy to a place of discomfort is crucial. And I think I'm not a big believer. And let's go down on the catch. Right. Because now I think good teams are well versed on the spacing and the skipping. I think one thing that separates Purdue is when Zach passes that ball out of the double team. It's usually not the first pass that gets shot. Right. It's the second or the third. Yep. Right. Because it's like 
what are you always taught to do? What's the most open play? The second pass out of the trap, right? Yeah. So to me, they're really, really good at that. But I think one thing that you want to put more pressure on the ball, okay, post-passing is so bad, all right? Faking a pass to make a pass, throwing the ball in with velocity, hitting the target hand. And here's the other thing. I call it, I call them one-arm back posters, okay? They post with one arm and they post with their back, right? And like those guys are easy to guard. You can three-quarter them. You can three-quarter them. You can, I'm in front of them. You can do whatever you want, right? And so long before the post double, as you know, the best form of post defense is the ball pressure. So the more pressure you can put on the ball, along with how you make it uncomfortable for guys to get free, right, in that post. And then two things, okay, what's their shoulder, right? What do they really want? And here's the thing that I've learned over years, Brendan, that I think is really important when you go down into the double or to the dig is more guys have stronger hands than they have stronger wrists. And a lot of guys, they've got good hands. They can make the catch. So all of a sudden we think we can't get the ball. No, no, their wrists aren't as strong. There's not a a level of wrist strength that when they put the ball down on the ground, like when we're doing our driving drills or our post drills, and that's why getting the bigs to be able to handle the ball and all the driving drills and all the the dribbling stuff is so important for the post because we always wanted them to feel like you're trying to punch this ball six feet into the ground. That's how hard you're trying to dribble it. That's what a pound is to me. A pound is like this ball could create velocity enough to go six feet into 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 the earth if it was there. And what happens is guys aren't strong with the ball. You can take it from them. They're not strong on their dribble. They don't grip it when they pick it up. And you can turn people over. And then if you can get a guy spinning, and a term I used in, in coaching and I use it on television is the more traffic you can bring to the ball in the post, the better it is for you, right? So no matter what your scheme is, X, Y, Z, off the ball, switch red, whatever it is, whatever your scheme is, it's way too easy to get that ball in right now, whether it's catch, whether it's pass. I, I totally agree on that. Uh, you know, uh, I've always admired the way you learn. Uh, uh, and, you know, what are you, you, and you're also, as a coach, uh, many of us were reading challenged. You're one of the great readers of the, uh, in our business. Uh, what, what are the things that you're enjoying reading uh, and you probably have, you know, you probably should have given us a bibliography for this. Well, but I'm a little behind. I just bought <laughs> Doris Kearns Goodwin's uh, The Best Christmas Present for Me. Wow. Well, back in television, they did some clothes. Like when you're coaching, it's completely about the pullover, right? And it's it, it's it's this, right? Like <laughs> yeah. this would have been a great well, when you're coaching. You need some stuff, right? I yeah. can't show up at ESPN with. Lafonso Ellis and Seth Greenberg and all those guys. Oh, yeah. Seth, Seth used to have, you know, JC Penny. Now he's like got real stuff now. He has oh, yeah. stress. I'm the great. only guy there that doesn't have a clothing deal with blue Delta <laughs> jeans or whatever. Right. So <laughs> I needed some clothes, but the other best gift is the Barnes and Noble book, book, uh, the, uh, the gift cards. And oh, so okay. I love those. Like when I get those, but, uh, I'm Chick-fil-A cards, bought, but you can go either no, way with me. <laughs> I just bought Doris Kearns, good Doris Kearns, Goodwin's book. On Lyndon Baines Johnson, because oh, wow. I think there's a real, I've read Robert Carroll's books, but I think this is like a firsthand account, you know, when she was there and, and seeing his leadership. I, I try to mix up, uh, I'm reading again, A Hill to Die On by Josh Sherman, especially with everything that was going on in Congress 
And I found out Josh Sherman's a huge college basketball fan, George Washington grad. It's amazing how many times people in different uh, realms of life, different careers, they're fans of something else. It's like I'm a fan of politics. They're a fan of sports. So you learn that. But I'm reading that book, A Hill to Die On. Um, I always want to read something, um, something new uh, with religion, like especially the Pope has had some new books come out. And I think those are really, really good. I, I love reading those type of books because of the bookcase I have, you know, I try to go back to some books like uh, blood, sweat and chalk by Tim Layden is a book on how uh, football has generated on the offensive and defensive sides. I would recommend that. I always tell people about gridiron genius that Mike Lombardi wrote Fabulous. phenomenal book on coaching. Um, so th th those are the biggest to me. Um, I'm trying to reread rather than just go buy. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're in the book, you're in the store. What I've tried to really stay away from is buying a, a, a book in an airport because there's no discount. No, nothing, right. There's nothing. no discount. And I can't get into that. <laughs> buy it, buy it, bring it back and get 50% off the next one. Cause I want to keep my book. So <laughs> I've got to go to Barnes and Noble, maybe Amazon here and there, but, but those that. are the, those are the things. And I've got my writers that I want to read every day. And I think there's certain writers, like I wrote a great book. I read a great book by Mark Leibovich on the Trump White House. And I don't know Mark. I've, I've tweeted with him. He's a like, huge football fan. He's a huge I Patriots. Bet, yeah, I read that Huge Patriots. That was a great yep. If Mark Leibovich wrote it, I'm reading it. Yep. Because right? I just, it's, it's like Malcolm Gladwell. It's like some of these writers, no matter what they're writing about, th it's worth it. I mean, it's absolutely worth it. So you're going to learn something. So I, I, I it, my, my, my tastes are all over the place. You know, uh, years ago when Chuck stopped coaching, uh, daily, a, uh, He's, a, you know, he would, he was living down in Jupiter, Florida. And uh, he said, he called me up and said, uh, I've just read a great coaching book. Uh, you need, you need to read it. I said, what, what is it, Chuck? And I got my pen out. It's just good to great. Collins. Yeah. 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 Good to great. I said, Chuck, that's a business book. He said, listen, every book that I read is a coaching book. Yeah. And I think that's point. what you do. I, every yeah. book you take it and apply the things in there that, help you in your profession and i think it's a no great question. way to great way to read a book no yeah. question and uh what i've tried to do now is because i'm such an impulse buyer is <laughs> go in there and look at it look at it and look at it not buy it and if i still want it the next day then i get it but really if it's oh yeah i've cut back i've cut back because it's just like the, it just becomes too much like i've got so much in storage here right now uh in florida i've got boxes of books it's in that, florida that's yeah, our like problem. If i want to go look at my history if, like you're i'm looking at yours if i want to go look at mine i got to go to the storage room but if i want to go get my books i've got to go to the storage room because <laughs> Tony's. uh we we don't our this house is not a recruiting house when we have our our coaching houses those are recruiting houses so you've right. got it all up we have some stuff up here but there's yeah. no shrines in this house so there are no shrines for me they're all in a storage room in lakewood ranch or storage unit in Lakewood Ranch, Florida. That's my shrine. Uh, that's <laughs> well, hey, uh, we appreciate you so much. The coaches around the world that listen to our podcast in 200 countries now, it's just, you've been a, you've been a great help uh, to us since we started coaching you. And, uh, and I always appreciate how much you care about other coaches, helping them become better. And that's what, that's what a session like this does. Not only do I learn from you, which is the added benefit, but all these coaches, Tom, you're a, you're a treasure 
And I appreciate you and love you so much. Well, I appreciate man. that. Let me just say this, and I've said this to you privately in the past, but I'll say it on this, is, is one of the great reasons you're such an inspiration and one of the great reasons that you're so well thought of, obviously by me, but by so many other people, is because even when you were winning championships, you never forgot how you got there. And you were never afraid to spend time with people, okay? To me, it sounds corny, but it's true. When it comes to coaching, you've never met a stranger. And I think that says a lot about your success with players. I think that says a lot about your success as a coach. I think that says why you have the relationships that you have. And I think it says a lot about why you have, uh, why you're the inspiration that you are, because the great ones are always learning, okay? But even when you were at the top of the ladder, you weren't afraid to talk to somebody like me that was just starting out at Alma College. And I think that is... That is the stuff that, above all else, that's the respect that if somebody didn't even know you, they need to know that. Like, you have always been there for coaches, even when you were at the busiest uh, winning championships with the Pistons and whatever the Hawks, whatever you were doing, whoever you were with, okay, you were sharing your learning. And that's exactly what I want to do in television. Right. I try to do that in coaching. Well, I want to do that in television. If I'm learning it, I want to share it. Yeah. Because I think that's I think that's that's how I want to see it. Right. And I want to broadcast in television the way I'd want to sit and watch a game. Well, I want to coach and be a leader the way you have. And I appreciate that because of the way you what you mean so much to coaches and what you mean, not just coaches, but what you mean to everybody in the sense of if they pay attention to you, they're going to learn a lot of stuff. So I appreciate that very much. Well, I appreciate you. And I wish I'm going to play this for my wife because she doesn't appreciate anything I do. But, but anyway, she, you Zach, actually keep your office. That's a step. No, she let me, she, yeah. This is my only room in the house. You know, <laughs> you know, this is, she gave me 800, no, that's 400 square feet here. But, uh, Again, uh, have a great season. I know it's, it, it, this is, this is really fun. And, uh, and you are, this is really fantastic. I know our listeners are just going to enjoy this. You're the best, Brian. Thank you, Zach, too. Thanks for everything, Zach. Appreciate this. So it's fun to do it. I appreciate you. Thank you.